Welcome to Mind Love, episode 297. Today's episode is all about outsmarting your mind to make learning faster and easier. We get these messages when we're children, really about whether or not basically we belong in school. Those messages, they are really important and, and continue to be important when we're adults because they speak to how capable we think we are with intellectual tasks. And when we're on the job, how confident we feel about learning something new that comes up, looking towards the next opportunity that maybe is going to require, you know, is going to have a learning curve associated with it. How confident are we that we can take that on? But self-image is, I've, I've been emphasizing sort of the feedback you get and especially how that feedback is interpreted uh, for you by people you respect. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means Mind Love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. Have you ever wondered why some people seem to learn and retain information so much faster and easier than other people? Why some people can just breeze through books and lectures while others can't stay focused for a full paragraph? If I've learned anything in the last five years of hosting Mind Love, it's that what we believe about ourselves pretty much determines what we're capable of. And most of our self-beliefs are created during childhood. This goes back to research on growth mindsets versus fixed mindsets. For example, one study found that children who were praised for their effort were more likely to believe in their learning ability than those who were praised for their intelligence or their natural abilities. We are trying to remember this with our toddler bravery. As much as I just want to constantly tell him how smart he is all the time, I try to praise him on how good he is at trying new things or not giving up instead. As a kid, my husband was always really athletic, so he was just naturally good at physical things. So people were always praising him for his athleticism and how well he took to anything he tried. So when he tried things that were harder for him, like certain rare sports or something like singing, and he didn't just get it right away, he didn't really want to try it at all because he didn't want to ruin his reputation. So the messages we hear as children have a huge impact on our self-image and our confidence in learning new things. But it's more than just self-image. It's also our ability to focus, which is something that I think our current ways of life are starting to destroy a little bit. If most videos that we watch are 60 seconds or less, we're going to start tuning out anything longer, right? And beyond that, Research shows that our brains have a bias towards what's happening in the environment around us. One study found that people's minds wander almost half of the time while reading, and even more if they're listening to a lecture. This means that we're not really fully engaged in the material that we're trying to learn, which makes it even more difficult for our brains to retain the information. So think about it. Most of us were praised as children, or weren't praised at all, in ways that didn't necessarily help us. Then we have social media ruining our attention spans. 
And then our minds are just naturally wandering while we're trying to focus. And all of these experiences are giving us evidence that we're just not good at this whole learning thing. And then add on top of that, that as we age, we're not forced to learn to get to the next grade with all of our friends. So it gets pretty easy to just believe that we can't and we stop learning. But guess what? Focus and learning work kind of like a muscle. Use it or lose it. Focus is actually a huge part of a mantra meditation practice. I challenge you to just try to meditate on a mantra for 20 minutes and see how often your mind wanders. This doesn't mean you're failing. It just means that you're going to get better with practice. Because the less that we're willing to practice and engage in learning, the harder it will be. And then the harder it is, the less we want to do it. So it's kind of a vicious cycle. But what if there's a way to outsmart your own brain and make learning easier and faster? Well, that's what we're learning about today. Our guest is Dan Willingham. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia, and his research is mostly about the application of cognitive psychology to K-16 education. He's the author of several books, including Outsmart Your Brain, Why Learning is Hard, and How You Can Make It Easy. Three key things we will learn are why we remember some things and forget others, how to reduce mind wandering based on your listening type and how you process information, and a new understanding of procrastination and how to overcome it. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Dan Willingham to the show. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. So how did you become interested in learning and memory? Well, I, I've sort of had two phases to my career on that score. The, the first phase of my career was when I was doing basic research into learning and memory. And that started in graduate school. I went to graduate school knowing that I was going to be studying cognitive psychology, but that's a that's a broad field, and um, I didn't know whether it was going to be particularly attention or some aspect of vision or exactly what it was. And then I took a course in human learning and memory and just was absolutely fascinated. Um, and actually, some of the findings that interested me most found their way into this book as it happened. The second phase of my career started is is really kind of unusual. So I got my PhD. I was you know, sort of a typical researcher in a university setting uh, and was not interested in education or related fields at all. I like to uh, bring up this sort of an old joke in, in academia where you finally earn your PhD, you've worked so hard, and then you tell your parent, like, uh, you know, and you're all excited about it. And then they tell their friends, yeah, my child's a doctor, but not the type who helps anybody. And, and that was that was true of me, but it was I sort of went one better. I was a learning researcher who couldn't tell you how to learn. I, like the stuff I was doing is extremely technical. And then I got invited to 
give a talk to a bunch of teachers just because I live in the same town as someone who runs an education nonprofit. And I said, um, you know, I'm the kind of a learning researcher who doesn't help you learn. Um, and he said, no, no, we get that. We just think it would be kind of interesting to have a, you know, a memory researcher come talk to all these teachers. So I, I said, okay, you know, I was kind of flattered. Uh, so I said, okay. And, and six months later, I realized I had to give this talk and I was horrified. I, but, you know, it was like the talk was like two weeks away at this point. I had nothing planned. And I thought to myself, what am I going to tell teachers about how people learn that teachers don't already know? So I literally sort of went to my slides for the course I'd been teaching University of Virginia undergraduates for about 10 years at that point. And I just sort of picked out slides of stuff I thought was kind of interesting. And I had uh, not only had I rashly said I would do this talk, but I rashly invited uh, the woman I had been dating for a little while, who was a teacher, to come with me to Nashville to watch me give this talk. Like, oh, isn't this fun? Like, you know, you're a teacher and I'm talking to teachers. Won't that be cool? And half an hour before the talk, I, I like wouldn't let her come. I said, you can't, <laughs> you can't come. This is just going to be a disaster. But to my astonishment, of some of the things I said teachers didn't know about they did think it was really interesting and applicable to the work that they were doing. And my career absolutely changed course that afternoon uh, because I realized my field has done a terrible job of communicating what we know about how people learn to educators. And so I decided I was going to try to write for teachers and administrators, and then with my latest book for uh, for students. Uh, and that was about 2001. And that's largely what I've been doing since then. I wish I had a book like this back in college. <laughs> Although I still have the theory that so much of school is just to kind of fit us into these buckets of being worker bees. So maybe that's why they haven't really prioritized. Let's help people understand how their brains work and how to actually make the most of it. And I know that there's a lot in your most recent book that is directed towards college students, such as understanding lectures and how to take tests, but there's so much that's applicable to everyone, like how to learn by listening. I'm Everyone that we're speaking to right now is listening to a podcast. A lot of people take notes on it, how to read difficult books, how to plan your work, defeat procrastination, all of those things I found so fascinating. So I'm going to kind of focus on those topics that are for the more, more general audience. But in the very beginning of your book, you talked about these sort of paradoxes of learning, things that you don't expect, like how your desire to learn doesn't matter to your that actual was one learning. Once, Melissa. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. But remember when I said, like, I took this course when I was in graduate school and I yeah. said, there was some, that was one of the ones that just blew me away when I, especially as someone who had been a student and like, you know, for years and years, like my business had been cramming stuff into my mind. And then I found out like, oh yeah, all that desire to learn means nothing. <laughs> so anyway, sorry to interrupt you, but I just no, couldn't resist. I'm going to have you interrupt me in a second because yeah. that one actually took me by surprise too. I relate to having a lot of attention deficit disorder tendencies. And so for me, when I'm not interested in something, I almost completely tune it out versus if I am, it like sucks me in. But when I was reading this point from you, I was like, you know what though? When I hear stuff that I'm like, I don't want to know that at all. It's like I, I will 
<laughs> absorb it just as much as when I really want to know something. It? Yeah. And it's because I focus on it. It's like that moment I'm like, bookmark this, don't want it. <laughs> you know, it's not like I can yeah. turn my mind off. It's just that all of a sudden I perked up because I'm like, I either do or don't want this. It's not like the in-between mush, you know? A hundred percent. I mean, yeah, the other, the other thing you can think about is all of the things that happen to us you know, like little embarrassing incidents we've had, like in junior high or something, you can't forget those. And part of it, of course, is that you're rehearsing it over and over again. And probably your friends are helpfully bringing it up and remind you about these embarrassing things that happen. But yeah, like what we want to remember versus what we don't want to remember just doesn't matter at all. I mean, another another example, more positive example is, you know, just think about the last movie you went to and like a friend says, oh, you find, you know, you saw Avatar 2. I'm curious about that like what's it about you would never say oh well I don't know I like didn't study it you know I, <laughs> I forgot right you know it just because you're paying attention it just it just sticks with you uh, and then of course you know the opposite is also true that when there are things we desperately want to remember uh, for example names when we first meet people or where we put our phone uh, and that just doesn't seem to stick with us at all so yeah intention sadly, Maybe sadly, maybe it's actually good for us. There's a lot of speculation that the reason evolution left us with a memory that works this way is that we would not be very good curators of our own memory library. You know, you could sort of imagine like when I'm running away from the tiger, I'm am I really going to think, hey, that was a really bad spot to go. Like you shouldn't go back there again. Like you're just you're going to be a little busy at that time. So you may not remember to make that mental note. Yeah, and the amount of times where I actually have the moment of of saying to my husband, "Well, I where is that thing when I put it there? I even thought this is a great spot. I must remember this." Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's like any time that happens, I now have a, a different cue where I'm like, "I've actually created a notes list called my home inventory." And so if I have a new spot, a new thing, it's not a normal thing. I got to write it down because if I say I have to remember this, I just won't. The other one that was surprising to me is that repetition doesn't guarantee learning. And I know it doesn't really guarantee it, but in which cases is it helpful versus not? We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. 
It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. repetition doesn't guarantee learning. And I know it doesn't really guarantee it, but in which cases is it helpful versus not? Yeah, it has to be the right type of repetition. So the sort of go-to example, and this is very surprising because, um, again, people feel like that's one of the few uh, sort of tools in our toolbox that we are really confident about, that repeating something is going to make it stick in memory. Um But the go-to example for this is think about what a penny looks like, for example. Uh, And if you ask someone, do you know what a penny looks like? They'll usually pretty confidently tell you, yeah, of course I know what a penny looks like. And if you want to have a little fun, give them a piece of paper and a pen and say, okay, so draw a penny for me. And they'll very quickly discover, oh my, you know, I don't even know. I know it's Lincoln. And like beyond that, and, and I know, you know, the color, I know it's copper colored. Beyond that, like, I don't even know which way Lincoln faces or what's written on or anything. So there's something that you've had massive repetitions of. And yet you don't remember it. And the thing that you do remember is really instructive. So just a moment ago, you pointed out that like when I engage, that's when I remember. So the things you, the reason you don't remember details like what's written on the penny and which way Lincoln is facing is you never really think about that. The only thing you think about when you are concerned about what a penny looks like is color and roughly the size. You're just thinking like, oh, good, I've got a copper one. And that way she won't give me four copper ones in change. And that's as far as it goes. So even with massive, massive repetition, what you remember is what you think about. And you don't think about much else. Now, with given that, repetition of the right sort is definitely going to be helpful. So if you're trying to commit something to memory, the best thing you can do is try to bring some meaning to it. Memory loves meaning is the way I like to put it. Uh, And it's going to be much stickier if you're thinking about what it means. If you're doing that, repeatedly thinking about what the meaning of that content is, is definitely going to help. So the way you phrased it was exactly right. It doesn't, repetition doesn't guarantee uh, that it's going to stick in memory. 
Uh, but under the right conditions, it definitely can help. I think that's why I've always been sort of proud of the fact that I have a, a really good memory when it comes to the stuff that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. And I believe that the reason for this is because I'm always connecting ideas. Like I'll pause an audiobook or a podcast or stop reading for a second. And I'm like, where did I learn that before? Where was that relevant to? And I've actually gotten really into this lately. I love all the AI stuff coming out. There's new AI note-taking apps. And this one <laughs> that I've been using, not a sponsor or anything, but it's called okay. Mem. And I'm able to like connect notes. And so... I just type the at sign and then start to type like a title of a note and it'll bring up an, a different note or it'll bring up any related notes on the on the, the topic that I'm writing on. And it's so cool because I'm actually connecting information even faster. It's like how my brain works where I'm normally like, where was that? What episode was that? And so a lot of times I'll <laughs> I actually find my old information by just Googling mindlove.com and then doing a tab and then doing keywords to see which episodes it's come up on. Right. And I can do it right in my my notes app. But one of the things that uh, in your section on really how to learn better through lectures, so much of that applies to just learning by listening. And I know a lot of our listeners are college students. They might be taking meeting notes and they, or they might just be taking podcast notes. I get a lot of comments from people saying, I take notes on your podcast or whatever. And so why is it difficult to learn by listening and how can we help ourselves? Or I should phrase it how you do. What's my brain doing when I'm trying to learn by listening and how can I outsmart my brain? (laughs) Yeah. So the, the, the thing that your brain is doing is it is listening the way you would typically listen to a conversation, or sometimes you will get into the mode. If you're at something that's more like a formal presentation, you fall into the mode that you're in when you go to a performance, like a movie or a play or something like that. Both conversation, listening when you're uh, in a conversation and listening when you're at a movie, say, have one thing in common, which is they're not very mentally taxing. So when you're listening to a conversation, most of the time this is, you know, you're not, you're not, um, your purpose is not to learn new and difficult content. Your purpose is not to ultimately commit this to memory. Instead, it's a social thing. And so what that means, I mostly have to keep in mind the last couple of things that you said. I don't have to try to organize the entire conversation and sort of figure out, okay, can I come up with a summary of this? What was the main message in my conversation? You know, assuming that you and I are having a social conversation, right? It's much more of a moment to moment thing. And so uh, my the task that's in front of me in a conversation is really pretty simple. Now, if I'm listening to a performance, if I'm like at a movie, the, the, the task is much more difficult, except the person communicating with me has gone to a lot of trouble to make it much simpler. So it's going to be in a narrative structure, right? I just mentioned like you the next day after seeing Avatar 2, you, it's easy to remember what it was about. Well, that's because it's a story and stories have a predictable structure. You know what to expect. There are lots of logical links. And the person who wrote the screenplay has been thinking about making it easy to understand. Now, if you're listening to an hour-long podcast, it's not going to be as neatly organized. There's going to be an overall theme. And now notice your purpose again is has changed. Your purpose is no longer, oh, I'm just listening, you know, I'm just hanging out with Melissa and I'm just, 
you know, socializing and having fun. Now it's like Melissa's got someone on her show. Who I like I'm pretty interested in this topic. Uh, and as as we're going, you know, I've listened to her podcast before and I get so frustrated because afterwards I'm like, that was amazing. And then I think, oh my God, what was it about? Because I wasn't taking notes, right? So I want to like keep it all together in my head. That's a very different purpose for listening. You need to be thinking about what the organization is. And a guest may say something now that relates to something they said 15 minutes ago. And you need to be alert to that and build those connections. Just a moment ago, you were talking about sort of how your memory works and how one of the things you do for yourself that's so effective is making connections and thinking, oh, now when, when you say that, that reminds me of this other guest I had on my podcast, right? Within an episode, the same thing happens. People are saying things that you would want to relate. And then the last little bit I'll mention is if you're at a talk, so you mentioned someone who's you know in business and they go to a presentation. Sometimes you go to presentations, it really is a performance. It's there to for sizzle, it's there for entertainment. And that's fun and enjoy it. Uh, and then that's not a difficult listen. Other times you're at a presentation where it's quite serious and it's meant to communicate information. And you know you're supposed to walk out of the room having learned something new. That person who's giving that talk is thinking very carefully about the organization, but the organization is not going to be a narrative. It's not going to be a story organization. It's going to be probably a hierarchical organization. And once again, that make, puts much more of a burden on you to untangle what is related to what as you're taking notes. And so you really need to be on your toes thinking about that and looking for that organization. That makes a lot of sense. And that is oh, actually something that I do with my podcast is I do try to create a hierarchy, only I adjust for the idea that somebody may not have ever heard an episode. So I might call back to an episode, give them the link for that. But yeah, I, a lot of and I think that's why I am able to remember a lot of the things because I don't just prepare for an episode like, oh, what's on this guy's website? I go through the book. I'm like, oh, this would make sense here. And I'm like structuring it in such a way, which I think is one of the reasons why this podcast has done really well. So now that these things are fitting together, it's helping me to understand because sometimes I just do things naturally and I'm like, why am I so good at remembering here, but not over here? And it's like, oh, well, it's that structure that you've created for yourself over here that helps to retain that memory. Maybe you can apply it to this other area of your life, like the home inventory for any new thing that I get. You can. But, so first I have to say, I think the home inventory is genius. And like, you know, what what's the typical term that's used for this is external memory, right? Instead of having to carry it around in your head, you just commit it to paper. And I think that's a genius idea. And if it, if it were me, like, do you really care if that's in your head or on paper? Like the, the home inventory is fine. You know, the, the podcast, this is, you know, I think you would be more motivated to keep that in your head. And it, it goes back to what we were talking about a moment ago. When you talk about organizing things, the organization is, of course, bringing a lot of meaning. You're, these connections that you're making, you're not organizing things because they have they start with the same letter or they remind you of the same right you're organizing them based on meaning and memory loves meaning and so it's sticking with you really well i want to talk about the idea of planning our work because this one was one that i, I had to like slow down and make sure i really retained because i think we all deal with different forms of um, well procrastination will be next but even just trying to 
plan, something that we're going to do. And then it's like, oh, there's, I have a kid now. I'm going to have another one in a month. And so it's like, I, the understanding that like I have one hour to get stuff done, or I have this four hour block when childcare is here. And there just never seems like there's enough time. It seems like I never plan enough time. So why is it so difficult to plan correctly <laughs> anything that we're trying to accomplish what's our brain doing and how do we outsmart it i think i think the problem with planning is is twofold one is you initially need to recognize when it becomes challenging for you there are a lot of people especially and it, this sounds like this might we, you and i just met but this might apply to you melissa where you're pretty damn good at keeping things in your head and so things have to get pretty busy before the in my head system starts to fall apart. And I see this a lot with adults, especially people who are sort of in their early 20s or something. They're moving along. They're in their first job, but they're starting to move along. And they've never really needed to be very serious about organizing things because planning just wasn't an issue because they had it all in their head. So that's, I think, the first thing. The second thing is Finding a system that works for you, and in particular, finding a system that works for you when the things that you've got to keep track of are a moving target. And that's exactly what you were just describing. Like you have all of these new responsibilities, and so you're having to weigh their relative importance. You sort of recognize, okay, something's got to give. Like, I, you know, clearly some things I'm, I'm going to have to give up because I just don't have enough time. And so when, when you talk, when you ask the question, like, what is your brain likely to do? What your brain's likely to do is, first of all, not take the problem as seriously as you probably ought to. Um, there's one other little aspect to it that I talk about in the book, which is called the planning fallacy. And the planning fallacy is very simple. It, it basically means when you're trying to guess at how much time it's going to take to do something, you will very likely underestimate um, and this is really universal. Everybody does this. So it's 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 about recognizing, based on your own experience, what your flaws are, what your weak links are in doing your planning, and then coming up with a system that's effective for you. Earlier when you said, I can, I'm probably pretty good at keeping things in my head. Yes. And I relied on that for so long. And now that I'm not just managing my stuff, I'm managing my family's stuff, you know, and trying to yeah. remember if I fed my <laughs> toddler, like, not that it matters, he'll eat a cracker instead anyways, but <laughs> all of these you're things. Probably, you're probably the external memory, right? Like you've got your external memory on paper and other members of your family are probably using you as the external memory. Yes, everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, and, didn't someone plan dinner? Like what's going on? Right. Oh my gosh. Yes, you yeah. sound exactly like my husband. <laughs> yeah. And so I recently read Tiago Forte's Building a Second Brain, and it's just given me this whole new perspective. And it's weird because you know how sometimes you can know things or you've heard things before, but maybe with a different intention, it just hits differently. And so yeah. he talks about how, and I've even used the same analogy, so why didn't it hit as hard until I read it? But it's basically like leaving a bunch of tabs open. You decrease the amount of working memory that you have. And so, yes, I can remember all of those things, a lot of those things, not all of them. The to-dos, the tasks that I need to accomplish, that's already seemed obvious. I need to put that down somewhere. But I never really thought of it, of it regarding all of the associations of knowledge if I really want to just optimize my brain. So that's why I've been 
I've been such a nerd the last two months about my note-taking system. And so I was really I glad it. to read this because I'm like, oh, I, I understand now. Like, it's not necessarily that I'm going to need this for a test later on, but something about just putting it down, like maybe it's the quote, maybe it's what it means to me. I've also been distilling my notes. And so whenever I like write down a quote, at the end of the day, I'll go back to what the things that I wrote and actually write why was that meaningful to me, things like that, and it sticks differently. But then it's mm -hmm. also right there, so I don't have to remember it, but I can call to it whenever I want. And because I, the other analogy I often use is like holding a bunch of balloons. You can hold like 100 balloons, they're not heavy. One might slip out here and there, but you can also just tie them to something and then you have two hands to do whatever you want. Right. So it's like I tied my balloons and now I have all this working memory to decide what I, I want to learn next and to kind of put it in the process. And something about that level of trust just changes the energy around it. And it, it makes me feel, I don't know if more productive, it makes me feel more powerful in my learning, if that makes sense. Oh, it does. Well, and I think that uh, I wonder if you're feeling more powerful because you are more productive, like you're more in command and, you know, things are just working better. And you kind of know that you were, you know, it was your strategy that that made it that way, that you figured out what you needed to do and did it. But I also want to comment on something that that sort of uh, is a thread running through a lot of our conversation here, which is trying to be mindful and shrewd about what you need to commit to memory and what you can offload. We've talked quite a lot uh, in the last five minutes about offloading things to memory. And I've said, I think that's a great idea. And I do. And I love the, the balloon analogy for, uh, for one aspect of that. But there are things that you want to commit to memory. And you didn't say it explicitly, but said it indirectly when you were talking about your podcast. And you were saying, like, doing this organization and connecting things in this podcast to something that happened a couple of months ago. That's very difficult to do if everything about your podcast has been offloaded to external memory, because what that would mean is you don't really have any of the prior episodes in your head. And instead, like you're reading my book and you're thinking, what else, what else have I talked about that connects to this? Oh, God, well, I don't remember any of those podcasts. So then you have to go to your files and start looking through them. That's really going to be time consuming. And so having a rough idea of you know, the conversations that you've had, uh, your brain is very, very good at making those connections, but the information has to be in your brain. There's a, it's a common idea. It's a little less common today than it was maybe in 2010, uh, but you still hear it today. It's like, we don't need to learn anything anymore because now we've got Google. Google is much, much better than looking things up in books, but your brain is much better than Google is. In, in a couple of important ways. And I've just alluded to one, which is your brain is very context sensitive. It's good at bringing up the right information at the right time. Google is not very good at that. And the second thing your brain is really good at is speed, which I was I've talked about very directly. Your brain, Google's much faster than looking things up in books, but your brain is much faster than Google is. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. 
It's a zero sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. You're right, because ultimately my goal in doing this work is to twofold, to be the best human that I can be. That's why I have this topic. But also, I want to be an expert. I want to be able to help other people. And in order to do that, I have to know certain things. I can't just be like, oh, you need help? Let me look that up. Let me look that up every (laughs) single time. Like, yes, there's something to be said about being... I I really appreciate it in a coach or somebody that I'm working with where if they do actually say, well, you know, I'm not sure about that. I'll look that up. But everything (laughs) kind of defeats the purpose. I could do that, you know. And so that is why I have been reading how to learn. That's why I reached out to you and and the whole distilling the notes process I learned in how to take smart notes. You know, it's like it's a combination of, yes, I have the second brain over here, but my process of not just highlighting, not just writing down the quotes, but then writing down, like, what does this mean to me? Why was this important? And then creating smart notes, calls it your permanent notes. I sort of, I didn't really love their process. I just kind of did it in a two thing. Like, why is this meaningful to me? What do I really want to know about this? How does it apply to what I do in my life? And those things in general, if I've done that process, the my capacity to remember it just goes up exponentially because I've already applied it to my life in some way. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the next biggest thing, at least in my life, that gets in the way of learning is whether or not I show up for it in the first place because of procrastination. I don't know anybody who is immune to procrastination. And so when we are tempted to procrastinate, what is going on in our brains and how do we outsmart it? Procrastination is one of, this is kind of rare among psychological processes in that it kind of looks like it is exactly what it feels like, which is you are faced with a choice. You've got something to do that looks like it's not a whole lot of fun. And then you think of something else you could do that would be more rewarding. And so you want to do the thing that's that's more rewarding. There's also a little bit of a twist on this that makes the problem maybe even worse than we might first appreciate, which is a phenomenon called time discounting, which is that the value of rewards especially changes as they move into the future. So for example, suppose that 
your doctor told you, you really need to stay away from sweets. Like your, your blood sugar level is not good. You need not to have sweets. So you say, okay, well, that's going to be really hard, but I can try it. So we've got two scenarios here. One is you're pushing your cart in the grocery store. You go by the ice cream aisle. You love ice cream and you think, man, some ice cream after supper tonight would be wonderful. Oh God, my doctor told me I'm not supposed to have this ice cream, right? So there's one choice for you, one conflict. I'm, I want the ice cream, but I'm, I'm not supposed to have it. And I'm contemplating having it at supper. Here's the second. You just finished supper. Your husband goes to get him, sits down at the table uh, with a bowl of ice cream and says, oh, honey, this is terrible. Look at this. I got myself a bowl of ice cream. I didn't even ask you if you want any. Here, do you want this one? Now you have the same choice, ice cream versus no ice cream, but the ice cream's right in front of you, like seconds away versus hours away. Right? And everybody's intuition is the same. It's obviously easier to give up the ice cream when you're giving up ice cream that you're not going to have for hours compared to ice cream that's seconds away. So this is called time discounting, and it's a very universal phenomenon. As things recede into the distance, the, their rewarding oomph as you're contemplating them diminishes. And this varies with age. So like for small children, the discounting curve is really, really steep. In other words, like something that's happening tomorrow has no reward value at all. That's why you, if you say to a child, like, if you're good, I'll take you to the park on Saturday. Saturday's the moon as far as a kid's <laughs> concerned, right? Like that is meaningless. Has no compared to like being naughty now, which is fun immediately. So time discounting makes procrastination worse. And that's one aspect of this that people don't realize. When you ask me to you know, do do what I'm supposed to do as opposed to, you know, go on social media and, and enjoy looking at what my friends are doing. You're asking me to delay the pleasure of looking at social media for several hours, right, while I do my work. Well, the social media has more value to me now than it does several hours from now in the same way that the ice cream does. And so this is one of the things that makes procrastination so difficult. So in terms of what your brain's going to do, your intuition of what your brain is going to do is probably pretty on target, but the problem is slightly worse than you maybe thought it was. So a lot of the ways of dealing with procrastination are basically tricking yourself into going ahead and making the decision that you know you're in, in the long run, you kind of know you ought to make. So I'll say two things about that briefly. One is if the thing that you want to do possibly can be scheduled so that it becomes a habit, that is by far the best choice. So what makes habits so powerful is that the choice is just removed. The difficulty with procrastination is you're being asked to make this choice. And if it's if it's work that comes up regularly, then, I mean, even if I was talking with somebody the other day, they're like, I can't floss my freaking teeth. Like, I, they're like, that. I procrastinate that because I have this habit of getting in bed and reading. And then I think, oh, I need to floss my teeth. Oh, I'll just do it a little later. Oh, I'll just do it a little later. And then I end up not doing it. So this is an example of something that comes up again and again. And this would be a great candidate for becoming a habit. You shouldn't be making the choice every single night. It should be like any other habit where you just kind of find yourself doing it. But what you need is first you need to set things up so that it will become a, a habit. And then you need to figure out ways of getting yourself over the hump where you've done it enough that it becomes 
habitual. And there are, there are a number of standard tricks. Uh, and I think most people, you just have to try different ones to see which ones help you. One of the ones that I find most powerful is sort of talking yourself into the idea that you're allowed to quit if you really hate it. Uh, because there is pretty good data from exercise in particular. And so it, this this may not uh, transfer to all, all activities, but there's good uh, data from exercise that people think they're going to be really miserable while they're exercising. And then if you ask them once they start, they're like, this really isn't, as, it's really not that bad. You know, I'm, I'm fine. So my sister actually, when she was trying to become a runner as a way of tricking herself into it, she you know, had the calendar on the wall and she would put the big red X on days she went running. But what she would do is she said, if I put on my my exercise clothes and I get to the bottom of the driveway, I have run for the day. I'm allowed to put the big red X on my calendar. Uh, and occasionally she would do that. But most of the time she would get to the bottom of the driveway and say, this is ridiculous. I can run a little bit. And then, you know, sure enough, she would run a little bit. That's how I started my meditation habit years and years ago. It's the whole premise of the 10% Happier app. And you start out where it basically cues you after one minute of meditation. And it's like, and you can stop. And I don't think I ever actually stopped after that one minute. Then it would cue you after five minutes and then after 10. And and I ended up developing the 10-minute the meditation habit. Once I had that habit, I liked other apps better, but that one really, really helped me kind of get my foot in the door. And so for me, the number one habit that I've realized makes my whole life better, well, that's a big thing because now I want to go back to meditation and all these other things. Yeah. But the thing that helps me keep this structure is I've made it a habit to create my to-do list of my top five most important things the night before. And this works so well for a number of different reasons. That note-taking app that I told you about automatically has a template where it'll create a new note every day. So it already has the to-do there. Plan your next, your five tasks for tomorrow. And so it's the last thing that I do at night. But I found that even if I'm trying to create a habit of planning my day in the morning, then everything is right there, you know? And so I know my moods. And so I can talk myself out of things like, oh, I don't really feel like doing this today or I don't really feel like doing that today. But if I do it the night before, I don't know how I feel tomorrow. So I can objectively plan my tasks. And yes, every nice. now and yeah. then I'll move it around every now and then, but rarely because I'm like, it's there. I've already committed that these are the five most important things that I need to do. And then I actually have been using... Uh, time blocking. So that's the other most helpful thing. Yes, I can get stuff done without it, but it's not as consistent. And so I have those five tasks and I move them onto my calendar. Like here's the block that I'm working on this one. Here's the block that I'm working on this one. And I'm a powerhouse when I do that. <laughs> I, I love the way you describe that too, that it's like today, Melissa doesn't care that tomorrow, Melissa doesn't really want to do this, right? It's like, this is the one today, Melissa knows this is the most important thing. So she's going to commit tomorrow, Melissa, to, to doing it. I'll, I'll just add one little idea. I love that idea. And uh, another thing I know some people do is they will not only do their to-do list at the end of the day, but they, they will block out the last 20 minutes, 30 minutes of work to cleaning their office so that when you come in the next day, everything is put away and you feel like you've got a fresh start. 
Uh, and then also jotting down a few notes, if, if appropriate, jotting down a few notes of where you are in the process, if you're working on a big project or something, so that when you come in, you don't sort of say to yourself, well, where, you know, I know I was making headway on this, but where the heck was I in this thing? I don't remember exactly what I'm doing. So if appropriate, uh, it can help you sort of get going quickly if you, because uh, it's all obviously all in your head at the end of the day. I am adding that to my, t- my daily <laughs> template because I really, really like that. I do kind of do a couple sentences of journaling, like what went well today or what were my wins for today? I, I kind of switch them up um, and then any other notes. And so a lot of times I'm like, what am I writing in these notes? Sometimes I'll just write how I feel, but I like that one better, especially the addition of cleaning because I can I can just get really cluttery. <laughs> and that comes back to my procrastination. And, so and that's another one that's it's a little hard to for me to form that habit because like if I'm on a roll, I don't want to stop and clean up. Like I want to, you know, keep going. But unless it's like really feels urgent that I keep working, I'll be glad the next day. Tomorrow, Dan will be glad that today, Dan stopped what he was doing and cleaned up. Yeah, it's been easier for me lately because I've completely cut out TV, which has been a goal of mine for a long time. (laughs) And so and by that, I mean, on a daily basis, I think in the last two months, I've watched TV one time (laughs) because I just needed to relax. I am eight and a half months pregnant. So I'm actually really proud of myself that I've been able to stick to this. That's amazing. But when you don't have that as a default, like, oh, I'm just going to sit down. Then it's like, well, now I've got a balance. How am I going to spend the last hour of my day? I don't want to go back and do work at this point. So kind of like the journaling or the picking up or the organizing the fridge sounds great because (laughs) what else am I going to do? It's really funny when you take off those distractions, how much more time you realize you ultimately have. But the last one that I'm working on, and this is going to be on our our next focus here, is how to actually stay, <laughs> learn to stay focused. Because my last vice that I really need, I've gone in and out. I've got some really good systems, different guests that have taught me how and been like amazing at having no social media or like 30 minutes of phone a day. And then I'll just like dip back and everything comes flooding back in. So I need to revisit this process because it's like the last thing hanging on. So when we're trying to stay focused, what is happening in our brains and how do we outsmart it? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, (laughs) and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove.
when we're trying to stay focused, what is happening in our brains and how do we outsmart it? Your, your brain really does have a bias not to stay focused. Your brain really does have a bias to sample what's happening around you in the environment, which makes perfect sense, right? That you would, uh, you know, you think over evolutionary time that it maybe was not such a great idea to be completely focused on one thing and oblivious to the the remainder of your environment. So you you do have this this propensity to sort of see what's going on around you. The, there are a couple of ways that you can fight that. I mean, I think the most important one is don't do it willingly. Most people multitask and there's ample evidence that multitasking is real you're not you're not doing what you think you're doing it feels like you're doing a couple of things at once and you're being more productive but the quality of the work that you're doing is definitely reduced when you multitask and if one of the tasks that you're doing is something that you really don't care about um, then you're really incurring a cost uh, the most notable is I've I've seen so many people who have video content going while they're uh, while they're work ostensibly working. You know, they're like, well, I like to keep up with the news, or I like to know what my investments are doing, or something. And there's lots and lots of experiments showing that that is distracting. And again, people don't perceive that it's distracting to them. They feel like, oh, it's just background noise. I'm not really paying attention to it at all. Uh, and the way they do these experiments is, is uh, I think, really apt for the problem. They, they try to make it as realistic to real life. They sort of give up on some of the scientific control that we usually want. So what they do is they tell people, we want you to stream video content, whatever video content you would typically stream while you're working, that's the content we want you to stream. And we want you to interact with that the way you typically would. So if you have the sound off, then have the sound off, you know, like however you typically do it. And so different people are doing different things during this experiment, which like as a scientist sort of, you know, makes makes my head explode. But it's the right way to do this experiment because you do want that realism. And very consistently you find the cost. Now, music is perhaps more common as a multitasking thing, having music on. And the story with music is more complicated. It actually took researchers a long while to unravel this because everybody thought the type of music would make a big difference. And it turns out it doesn't make that. Like everyone thought like, oh, it's words versus no lyrics. If you know, That's going to be really important and how distracting it is. It turns out it's not. Um, the, one, the one consistent thing is if it's music you don't like, you get a big cost, uh, which everyone's always like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to put on music I dislike. I'm like, yeah, but if you work like in a coffee shop or something, you may end up listening to music you don't like very much. Or this is actually really important in education because a lot of times um, a teacher will put on music for the class, figuring this is you know kind of nice, like they're doing art or whatever it is. Um, and you know, if some of the kids don't like the music, that's not so great. Uh, but even if you're listening to music you like, music ends up being a mixed bag. And sometimes it interferes with your work. Sometimes it has no impact. And sometimes it actually helps. And the reason there's so much variability is that music has two opposing effects. On the one hand, music distracts you just like video content does. But music also uh, sort of uplifts you. It energizes you, right? So you get increased heart rate, you feel more, this is why people listen to music when they're, uh, when they're exercising. So whether uh, mu having music on while you're uh, trying to focus helps or hurts, 
depends on what your motivation was to do the primary task you're doing, whether you felt kind of tired or felt pretty good when you went into it, um, and probably some other factors. So that's why you get this mixed bag. So with music, you can, if you like listening to music while you're trying to focus, just be aware of that there, there is this variability in, in whether it helps or hurts and try and monitor uh, what exactly what's happening. I am surprised by that. But once you actually explained it, that makes perfect sense. One of the things that I use, there's a service called Brain FM. And it was on a I got a lifetime deal for it a long time ago. And it's supposedly music that is they actually have scientists that are trying to prove which one uh, or that it actually does help focus. And so they've got like focus, creativity, whatever. I used to love it more than I do now. I feel like they've varied it too much. And now sometimes I'm just like, I don't like this. <laughs> Maybe yeah. that's why I feel like I can't concentrate. Yeah. But what I have found, I think actually works well for me is I'm really into like frequencies and how frequencies affect your brain. And so I was looking mm -hmm. it up and had found that 60 hertz frequency is helpful for focus. And so I specifically went on Spotify and just searched for 60 hertz playlists. And so it'll say like 60 hertz playlist for frequency. And sometimes it's just like a sound. Well, it says like frequency tone. And so it might have like a binaural beat in the background or something like that, oh. but usually very mild. And so it's not distracting. It doesn't feel like you're like listening to EMDR, but it, I, every time I, I always get visuals for things and I, it, it feels like all of a sudden my brain will just go zoop and, and just align itself. And so I feel like oh, it, it really helps my, my focus. And so this, it's like, you're listening to a pure tone. You're listening yeah. to a beat. That is, I, so I've not heard about this. I've not seen any research on this. Try that's, it out. That's fascinating. Okay. There, there is some research online. Uh, so you can vet it. Let me know because for me, it does really feel like it, it works, but it just can't be too, there can't be too much going on. Otherwise it, it may or may not work for me, but it's just kind of like this tone. Sometimes it'll have like a pink noise on it as well. Right. And so it's just like all of a sudden, maybe that's just the part it, it like harnesses my, the part of my brain that wants to do other stuff. And so then it just lets me like hone in on whatever the task at hand is. That's very interesting. Yeah. Normally the advice is find an environment that doesn't have noise, doesn't have distraction, but in general, the noises that are more distracting are noises that change. If you if you're so if you're in your kitchen and your refrigerator is humming, you're going to be able to habituate to that. It's not going to be uh, it's not going to be nearly as distracting as something that's changing, like hearing a conversation in the next room or something like that. Well, the next thing I want to talk about, because I think this is so in line with the topics of this podcast is how our self-image as a learner affects our ability to mm -hmm. learn. Yeah. And so you talk about how important it is to gain self-confidence in your own ability to learn. What do we need to know there? I, yeah, I think that's so important because we get these messages when we're children um, in school about really about whether or not basically we belong in school, whether we're kind of good at this or not good at this. And these messages come from educators, unfortunately, sometimes. Uh, they, they certainly can come from parents. Uh, and they, a lot of times that you, this message comes to you when there's some sort of a setback. I mean, everybody at some point has some sort of a problem in school. You know, you, you, uh, it's clear that everyone else seems to be figuring out this reading thing. And it's, you know, it's not working out for me. What's going on? Uh, and when there's a setback like that, you're, 
uh, teacher and your parents can either give you the message, yeah, I see this is hard for you, but you know what? I have full confidence that you are capable of learning this. And if you try hard and um, you know, with more instruction and I'm gonna help you, I'm confident you can do it. Versus a teacher or parent seeming to give you the message of, yeah, well, this is really hard for some people and some people just, you know, just doesn't really come together and that's too bad, right? Very clearly giving you the message, you are the kind of kid who is not especially good at learning. And we carry those messages. And of course, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because then when there's a setback next time, uh, if I think I don't really belong in school, then I'm, uh, you know, I'll, I'll interpret that setback as supportive evidence. I was right. I really don't belong in school. Um, versus, you know, if I'm very confident I belong in school and something goes wrong, I think, okay, well, I need to work harder. Or uh, equally often, a teacher gave an unfair test and was the problem. I'm, I'm, I don't have the problem. Teachers got the problem if I failed the test, right? So those messages, um, they are really important and, and continue to be important as uh, when we're adults because they speak to how capable we think we are with intellectual tasks. And when we're on the job, how confident we feel about learning something new that comes up, looking towards the next opportunity that maybe is going to require, you know, is going to have a learning curve associated with it. How confident are we that we can take that on? Um, but self-image is, I've, I've been emphasizing sort of the feedback you get, and especially how that feedback is interpreted uh, for you by people you respect. There are other uh, things that go into self-image. One of the big ones is who you compare yourself to. Um, so, you know, I actually, one of my children was just wonderful at English. And she was, she was, rather than being brilliant at English and math, she was just very good. But she was convinced she was terrible in math. And the reason she thought she was terrible in math is that her best friend was sort of the best in the grade at math. And she was always comparing, you know, her best friend, like never had to think for a minute. Everything just was instantly understood. And so my daughter thought that's kind of how English is for me. And so I must be not very good at math. Right. So these comparisons are also really powerful in terms of your self-image. So I feel when I go snowboarding with my husband and then I'll go with somebody else and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm actually really good at this. <laughs> <laughs> He's over there doing flips. I'm doing like these little baby bunny hops, but whatever, <laughs> to each yeah, their own as exactly. long as we enjoy it. Well, the last thing I want to cover because I know so many people deal with anxiety and this is something that I've found for myself. You talk about how a lot of our reactions with anxiety or our, the way our bodies are responding with anxiety are learned behaviors, which is not what most people think. And so, but it's interesting for me because I've never identified with having anxiety. Like I've just always kind of been this chill person until mm -hmm. I had a baby. And it's not like all of a sudden I'm like, oh, there's more to be anxious about. It's like something flipped in my body or something and I'll just feel it. And I'm like, ah, what is that? Oh, that's right. that's what people have been <laughs> dealing with. And and I found there it was worse right after I gave birth with my first but I noticed because I have this self-awareness that there'd be like a trigger and sometimes I wouldn't even know what the trigger necessarily was. But then the next trigger would be the fact that I identified, oh, I'm feeling that anxiety feeling again. And depending on what I did in that moment, it would either spiral and get a lot worse 
or yeah. I could dissipate it. And so I want to talk about that because I feel like it could be so helpful for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, the spiraling process is is really very real. And the the people like myself who are really susceptible to anxiety know that you what you have is this even when even when you're not anxious there is this sort of low level watchfulness where you're sort of monitoring your environment to a greater or lesser extent for the kinds of things that make you anxious so if you have social anxiety uh, you know and you find yourself in a situation with a lot of people that you don't know you're kind of monitoring am i going to find myself in a social situation where like i need to start talking to these people or someone i you know I, I find myself in a group where they all know one another and i don't right so that's the kind of thing you're thinking about and if you feel anxious unconsciously you will feel like there is some kind of a threat here right even if you can't put your finger on it this makes you more watchful because your anxiety is sort of information. This is a, a whole theory of emotions, that our emotions are there to sort of inform cognition and tell you about your environment. So that's the way you can interpret anxiety is there's a problem and you just don't know yet what the problem is. So that kind of increases that watchfulness. And then you don't, you can't locate what it is that is causing the anxiety. And that makes you still more anxious. And then you start having thoughts about those thoughts, right? Like, why can't I just be normal? Why can't I go to a party like anybody else? Why do I have to flip out? These are all nice, friendly people, right? And so this is how this, this sort of spiraling process can, can get out of control. So there are, there are a couple of things you can do. I mean, one is trying to prepare for that circumstance, not while you're in the midst of it. So trying to sort of calm yourself down and talk yourself through the, the situation is not going to work when you're in the situation. At the very beginning of our conversation, you talked about working memory and how when working memory gets occupied, there's no space for anything else. Anxiety takes up a lot of working memory. So thinking about applying a strategy when you're in the midst of anxiety is, is, is really not going to work. So instead, if you know I've got in two days, I've got to go to this social, this, this work-related social function, which is the kind of thing that always makes me anxious. Let's think this through and let's think about, uh, let's, let's try and bring some uh, objective reality to what this situation really is. Now, let's think, when was the last time I was really, really embarrassed? Like, what, what am I worried about? I'm, I'm worried about making a fool of myself. I'm worried about damaging my career. Okay, when, when was the last time you really made a fool of yourself at one of these things? Let's think that through. Then let's think, okay, suppose the worst does happen and you, you know, you inadvertently create a scene. With someone with your work history, what's likely to happen to that person? Are you really likely to be fired on the spot? which is where your thought is spiraling out of control. Are you, you know, like what, or, okay, that's probably not going to, what's more realistic? Doing all of this thinking, the reason you want to do this 48 hours in advance is then when you're at the party and you start having those thoughts, memory does not take very much working memory capacity. I can remember what, how I went through all this 48 hours ago uh, in a way that uh, even though I can't think it through on the spot at the party. And so then I'm better able to say like, okay, and sort of stop that spiral. I can say, okay, you know what? I've been through all this. I thought through what the worst case scenario was. 
And I didn't love that. Like there were certain things I thought of that I thought like this could end kind of badly. But I also have to admit, I I could admit to myself that those were pretty unlikely. And even if the worst thing did happen, it wasn't really as bad as I was making out. Well, there's so many helpful tips in this episode. I love leaving listeners with one thing to focus on just because there is so much that we covered and (laughs) which things are they going to retain? So if you were to give them one piece of homework, one little thing to really drill this in to help them remember what we learned in this episode, or even if it's just one of the aspects, what little piece of growth work would you give them? I would say, uh, unfortunately, I maybe should have said this at the top of the uh, of the of the episode. Uh, but what I would say is, as you're listening to this episode, think how you would implement each of these advice uh, pieces of advice, and naturally, like the ones that you want. You know, like you're not forced to do all these things if you don't want to do them. But thinking about how they relate to you, that's going to drill in meaning, which we've talked about, and then also self relation. Also, you get a little extra kick to memory when you relate to be remembered information to yourself uh, on top of the meaning-based uh, boost. Uh, so if if you want to remember the tips from this episode, that would be the way to do it. I love that. And it's something that you can even take through the rest of your week when you're listening to something and you're like, I want to remember this instead of just saying, I need to remember this <laughs> and then being mad at yourself later on, convert that into how does this relate to me? How does, why do I want to remember this? What, what's going to be important about this in the future? And you'll probably remember it a little bit better. So for listeners that are interested in learning on all about all of the topics that we didn't get to cover today, especially if you're a a student, very helpful. Or if you go to conferences, things like that, this book, it, just has a wealth of information. So for listeners that want to connect and find more about you and your book, where's the best place to do that? Uh, you can find it anywhere online. Uh, Simon & Schuster is the publisher. They've got a landing page. Uh, but you know, if you go to Amazon and uh, look for Outsmart Your Brain or any of your favorite booksellers, they've all got it. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 297. Here's your challenge for this week. Next time you're reading something or listening to something that you want to actually retain, either pause or even while you're listening to it, start thinking about how the information relates to you. For some reason, I've always been pretty good at learning and remembering things, and I think this might be it. I am always either thinking about how the information relates to me how I would teach it to somebody else, or where it's relevant in my life. And just like Dan said, I do retain the information much more often. A lot of times, I'll even pause it and summarize it in my mind. You can even go back and re-listen to this episode or listen to a new one that you know that you want to retain. So let me know how it goes. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. I also have a fantastic way for you to learn new information, and that's at the Mind Love Membership. You can find out more at mindlove.com slash membership. Every month, there are new masterclasses that walk you through new information to retain. We have a masterclass on a spiritual approach to goal setting, on increasing your self-discipline, on rewiring your mind for change. Plus, we have some pretty fantastic masterclasses coming up, like creating and building habits, meditation, all sorts of good things. So find out more at mindlove.com slash membership. 
When you sign up, you also get to listen to Mind Love ad-free and you get dozens of meditations, plus a whole backlog of over 100 exclusive Mind Love episodes that are only available to members. So find out more at mindlove.com membership. You can also find my sponsors at mindlove.com sponsors. And if you love this episode, please consider sharing it by taking a screenshot and tagging Mind Love Podcast and Mind Love Melissa. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into Your Higher Frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. 